You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. ChatGPT takes an unexpectedly human turn in having its own version of hallucinations. Updates on Klopp's ransom note, background, and recent promises. Researchers look at Instagram's role in promoting C-Scam. A look at Killnet's reboot. Andrea Little-Limbago from Enteros shares insights on cyber's human element. Our guest is Alexander Yampolsky from Security Scorecard on how CISOs can effectively communicate cyber risk to their board. And a hacktivist auxiliary's stellar advice for protecting your data. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Thursday, June 8th, 2023. OpenAI's ChatGPT chatbot is often described as having their own version of hallucinations, and these aren't the kind that medicine can fix. Researchers at Vulcan Cyber warn that attackers can use ChatGPT to trick developers into installing malicious packages. Noting that developers have begun using ChatGPT for coding assistance, the researchers state that they've seen ChatGPT generate URLs, references, and even code libraries and functions that do not actually exist. These articles are the hallucinations referred to. Large language model hallucinations, Vulcan says, have been seen in the past, attributable to old training data. If ChatGPT can fabricate false code libraries, an attacker could, theoretically, create a package that replaces the one that ChatGPT recommends. Victims could then download and use it. Following Klopp's ongoing efforts to extort victims affected by its exploitation of a MoveIt vulnerability, reports say the gang has issued demands to negotiate ransoms to potentially hundreds of victims. The Register reports that the ransomware group, in an uncharacteristic move, gave a June 14th deadline for victims to contact the attackers. This change of tactics, as IT Pro reports, could be due to the unusually large amount of data stolen by the group, saying that members of the cybersecurity industry have speculated that Klopp has ingested too much data for it to identify the company to which it belongs. According to research from Crawl, Klopp could have discovered the MoveIt zero-day exploit as long as 2021. They explain that 
Kroll's review of Microsoft Internet Information Services logs of impacted clients found evidence of similar activity occurring in multiple client environments last year, April 2022, and in some cases as early as July 2021. Kroll also advises companies using MoveIt to check in their disk drive's directory for suspicious .aspx files as indicators of compromise. Progress, the software developer of MoveIt, has created a web page for the vulnerability that describes mitigation steps and provides situation updates. Can you trust what a ransomware gang says when it's negotiating? Experts say, probably not. CBC Canada reported yesterday that CLOP has claimed they've deleted all government data from their site. MSISoft threat analyst Brett Callow wrote in an email that the claims should be assumed to be false, highlighting the fact that there is no reason for a criminal enterprise to simply delete information that may have value. And even if it were deleted, he reminds us, they still conducted the breach in the first place. Businesses today aren't exactly making it difficult for ransomware attackers either. TechRadar writes that the amount of small and medium-sized businesses in the United Kingdom deciding to cough up the cash when victimized in a ransomware attack has increased significantly over the past year. A SensorNet report shared that the shift to giving in seems to stem from the general incapability of companies to manage their cyber threats. Email attacks were the primary vector against companies in the past year, and the research shows that firms would benefit from better, more widespread threat solutions. An investigation by the Wall Street Journal and researchers at Stanford University and the University of Massachusetts Amherst has found that Instagram's algorithms have a vast network of accounts openly devoted to the commission and purchase of underage sex content. Researchers from the Stanford Internet Observatory discovered many accounts of those claiming to be minors that are openly advertising self-generated child sexual abuse material for sale. The researchers uncovered similar networks on Twitter and Telegram, but note that Instagram, between recommendation algorithms and direct messaging capabilities, is the most important platform. According to the journal, a Meta spokesperson acknowledged that the company had failed to act on reports of child sex abuse content, and the company condemned the behavior, asserting that investigations against these acts are in place. Killmilk's reorganization of the hacktivist auxiliary they lead on behalf of the Russian intelligence and security teams continues. Radware describes the reboot as a move toward a more professional, better disciplined organization— Killnet had hitherto been willing to present itself as a grassroots movement, but no more. Radware writes that the revised Killnet isn't for armchair hackers and DDoSers, nor is it a platform for self-promotion or a ticket to overnight fame. Only the most astute will find their place in the new Killnet auxiliary, says the cybersecurity firm. So, Ivy League grads, there's finally a place that can put that well-earned degree to use. Maybe just not one that you'd want to write home about. And finally, who better to advise you on how to protect your data than someone that wants to steal it? No Name has been posting interesting IT stories from the Russian perspective, and with it, they also published their own tips to protect your financial data online by following 12 simple steps. How can you defend your financial assets on the Internet, they ask, helpfully and rhetorically, 
and then go on to offer some advice on digital hygiene. No Name seems to be positioning itself as a community leader, offering advice and information to ordinary users. So why are they doing all this? They're positioning themselves as a source of news for the Russian domestic audience. And the stories they're offering are all straight out of the Kremlin's script. Coming up after the break, Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros shares insights on cyber's human element. Our guest is Alexander Yampolsky from Security Scorecard on how CISOs can effectively communicate cyber risk to their board. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor splunk you know you need to keep operations humming around the clock but potential disruptions are everywhere splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime the world's largest enterprises rely on splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient resilient and innovative with Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. There's that old saying, that bit of wisdom, that everyone has a boss. No matter the title on your business card, there's someone to whom you are accountable and for the cybersecurity leadership in many organizations, that means the board of directors. These past few years have undoubtedly seen board members increase their knowledge and understanding of cybersecurity issues, but bridging the gap between cyber risk and business risk can still be a challenge. Alexander Yampolsky is CEO at Security Scorecard, and I checked in with him for insights on how CISOs can effectively communicate cyber risk to their board. There's not been a lot of KPIs for cybersecurity, and I 
experienced that personally when I was a CISO at Guild Group. I knew what my budget was. I knew how much money I was spending. But I had no idea if I spent a million dollars on the latest, greatest endpoint security technology. I had no way of quantifying if I became 1% safer, 2% safer, 0% safer. Uh, and that complete lack of KPI and ability to really quantify ROI is a big issue because what you cannot measure, you cannot improve. Yeah, it seems to me like for a lot of folks, they're, they're stuck with that frustrating message, which is, you know, we spent all this money and nothing happened. Good news. Uh, and furthermore, you know, and furthermore, not only that people can't measure uh, things, uh, they spend the money and then they can't quantify the risk. They also lack complete visibility of their business partners because they could be protecting themselves, but then they're spending millions of dollars, for example, to host their solution on a cloud provider, or they're spending millions of dollars with a law firm, but they have no idea if their information is being protected. It all goes back to measurement and quantification. And any other field, we have metrics. You drive a car, you have a speedometer showing to you how fast you drive. You go to a board meeting to review financials, you have gross margin, LTV to CAC, EBITDA, um, and in cybersecurity, we have pretty much nothing. Well, what do you propose? I mean, what sort of measurements are available to us that, that we could turn into meaningful numbers? Well, you know, I think that uh, in any industry, there's no one number that magically captures every little nuance of a situation, right? So a number is not a substitute for a human judgment, but that was uh, actually the impetus for starting Security Scorecard. Security Scorecard is a security ratings, response and resilience company where we came up with a way of how to objectively in a trusted way measure security for any company in the world from outside and how to give security teams really a complete understanding of the risk their business ecosystem poses, their partners, contractors, third-party and fourth-party vendors. And so we came up with this platform that really provides KPIs and measurements for over 12 million organizations worldwide. Well, can you give us some insights as to exactly how you go about doing this sort of thing? Yeah, of course. So uh, the way that we uh, do it is the three steps in the process. So number one, we collect the signals non-intrusively from outside, uh, and the signals are heterogeneous. For example, it could be indications that you have a malware infection within the company or that you have a set of SSL misconfigurations where you did not configure them uh, properly or you have a number of patches that are missing. So we collect this data non-intrusively from all over the world. Then for every company in the world, we discover a tech surface uh, for that company. What are the business units? What are the subsidiaries? And then third, we compare companies to similar companies. For example, if you have 100 malware infections, we don't know if it's good or bad. So we're going to look at other similar-sized companies with the same attack surface and see if they have 200 malware infections and you have 100, then you're actually twice as good as everybody else. So you can see how many standard deviations you are from what the median of the pack is. And then we calibrate it based on nine years of historical breaches, and we assign a score representing likelihood of a company to uh, to get hacked. And so we actually published the algorithm uh, at uh, trust.securityscorecard.com. You could go to our website and we're very transparent about 
how it works, what we measure, and what ingredients go into it. But it's basically based on comparing yourself to what median is in the industry and how you compare it to others. Can you give us some insights as to what goes into quantifying the cyber risk? Well, look, to quantify, you know, to quantify the cyber risk, uh, you need to have a set of objective outside-in and inside-out indicators. And any type of quantification needs to be objective, not subjective. It needs to be transparent where you publish the methodology. Um, and it needs to be, uh, you know, it needs to be predictive. Uh, so you have outside-in data points. For example, you have data points like how does your attack surface appear to an attacker? Are you patching your vulnerabilities fast enough? Like how fast do you take to remediate known issues? Um, what are the indicators of poor hygiene from outside, such as you might look at a website and observe that you have an out-of-date copyright notice? It's not a vulnerability, but it's an indication that the company is not keeping its systems uh, diligently up to date, Right. Uh, and then you can also have inside-out components. For example, a company giving you suck to at a station, a pen test report, architecture diagrams. So really, in order to measure security, you need to have a 360 view, outside-in, inside-out, and then you have to be able to plug it into quantification models to really express how much money you could lose if a particular event occurs, like a DDoS attack or a ransomware. And so what are your recommendations for you know, a cybersecurity professional who goes down this path and then has to translate that for the board of directors or the, the higher-ups in the company? Well, yeah, 100%. So CISOs lack a common language for discussing cybersecurity risk with business executives. Board members are used to communicating in financial terms and discussing how risks and opportunities translate to organizational results. So my advice for CISO, you have to speak the language of uh, the board. Talk about what business outcomes you're trying to prevent. For example, you could say, I'm spending $300,000 to mitigate a potential $2 million outage due to denial of service attack. Whenever possible, CISOs should report in financial terms. How do you translate cyber risk into potential financial impact? Scenario planning is also a powerful technique that CISOs can use to create effective cost-benefit analysis. Um, I think also... Uh, the CISOs should really encourage the board to bring on a cyber expert. A board member with a strong cybersecurity awareness and background can help support the CISO by amplifying the importance of their cybersecurity investments. Form a cybersecurity committee at the board level, but start talking about business outcomes, start doing scenario planning, quantifying the possible risk and uh, financial uh, terms and the cost-benefit analysis and create a special cyber committee on the board where you bring a cybersecurity expert. That would be some pieces of advice. That's Alexander Yampolsky from Security Scorecard. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She is Senior Vice President for Research and Analysis at Interos. Uh, Andrea, it's always great to welcome you back. You know, uh, you and I were talking about uh, this year's RSA conference and the theme of the human element. Um, and you've uh, been part of uh, RSA conference of helping to uh, with, with some of the programs and things there. 
Uh, where do you suppose we stand when it comes to that notion of the human element and, and cybersecurity? Yeah, and thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, and it's interesting. I think you know, a decade ago, it really wasn't discussed all that much, and now it's almost taken for granted. So that that, that alone, to me, is a, is a great transition acknowledgement. I think we still tend to see quite a bit on you know blaming the user. User is stupid. There's nothing you can do, and that you know that defeatism. It doesn't necessarily help, and it does, certainly doesn't help in creating technologies that take for granted that humans are going to click on things and may be imperfect. But I'd say that, that the segment of you know, the community that still kind of is, is in that paradigm is, is decreasing, and we're seeing more and more the, the objective of all right, what, what, how can we create technology that works given human flaws? Because um, we all have them, <laughs> and we're all, you know, that's, it can be very easy to be tricked into clicking on something that's very targeted at you. So I think we're seeing you know, it really like a nascent movement and some of the innovation for how we can create technologies that take into account human fallibility, but also then help provide the defenses that take that into account. And so a couple of different areas that we're seeing that one is you know, just really the notion of security culture. Um, I think that helps a lot. And that's the, the non-technology. And so I think perhaps if we looked at you know, people, processes, and technology the processes is, is, is a good part where the security culture, we saw a lot of interest in that um, for submissions for RSA this year. Hmm. I think that's great. And I think, but it's interesting because on the one hand, it seems like it's been talked about for quite a bit, but it is something that's really hard to do. And I, I think anyone who's worked in an organization knows that creating a culture is, a, is, you know, is very, very hard and destroying one is actually is, is quite easy. And, hmm. So making sure that you're building a security culture that enables people to feel comfortable saying they may have done something wrong versus penalizing them for it, you know, can, can go a long way. And so there was a fair amount of interest and innovative ways for the security culture. And that's actually some of the technology can come into play as far as, you know, different gaming solutions to help people, you know, make it more the gamification of, of, of security to help them understand and learn and make it more interesting than a, than a click-through PowerPoint might be. And so I think that that's sort of a, that's an interesting way an area that we've seen. I'd say also you know, there's a lot of discussion on the metaverse and how mm-hmm. we can think about security before uh, it becomes widespread. And that one, I think that that's great that you know we're at a point of maturity where we can think about security as the technology is really still building, being built and growing instead of it being an afterthought. So, I, mm-hmm. so I'm you know cautiously optimistic about that, but still I think there isn't enough discussion on it. There'll, there'll be some discussion on it and how to think about that. But you know, the metaverse introduces all sorts of the very similar kinds of problems that we see you know, currently on the internet. You know, you mentioned maturity, and, and in my mind, I, I think that's a big part of it. I, I wonder about the the kind of professionalization of cybersecurity that we've seen over the last decade or so. You know, it's not it's no longer that elite group of uh, you know, hackers who came up uh, with their soldering irons and, you know, <laughs> working hard, uh, you know, throughout the night. It's, it's not so individual-based anymore is, is what I'm saying. And, and I think, as you say, that's leading to more diversity uh, in both the types of people, but also in thought. And, and so it seems to me like that's a big part of what's leading us to better solutions. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. The, the professionalization of the industry, which I know some have kind of pushed back against, but for the most part, I mean, it's it's here. We need to see you know, every company, you know, has has security concerns at this point, and so the professionalization of it 
has helped in, in that manner. And it has, I think that coupled with you know, the many diversity efforts that we see um, and then coupled with you know, just the way academia has, has changed and evolved as well to integrate various aspects of security into, you know, across disciplines uh, in many regards. And there's still a ways to go, but I think all of those together really have helped, you know, increase the maturity of it. Uh, you know, there's more and more discussion of CISOs being, you know, in the C-suite now versus being <laughs> on the side. Right, and, C in name only. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I, I think that I think that helps out a lot. Um, again, I think there's, there's, a, there's a ways to go, but the professionalization of it really will also help us provide and learn lessons from others that we can then share. And that's, I think that's also a, a core component is, you know, the information sharing. We often think about that as, you know, sharing on IOCs, or, or, which is important, but sharing lessons learned on, on how to build a security culture, for instance, or how to deal with insider threats, those kind of lessons learned, sharing those across the profession is really, really important. And that, again, is, is also something else that we're seeing is, you know, a greater desire to help both acknowledge some of the challenges you're having and seeing if others are have figured out a way to, to solve those, or if something is working, sharing that with others so they also can. Because at, at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to raise up all all boats, right? Because think about it within your supply chain, very often it's the the company that you maybe have a partnership with that has the lowest level of security that could then be the entryway into your own company. And so it is in everyone's best interest to help raise up the cultural you know, this awareness across all of your partners and across the entire industry. And so it's nice seeing uh, a movement in that direction. You know, I think it's a little overdue and it's still not where we need it to be, but it's great seeing a, a broader awareness and uh, encouragement of, of, of collaboration to help help everyone build a better security culture. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Andrea little Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Dave. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. 
Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by Rachel Galfin. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.